welcome to Eddie Hurst podcast version of The War of the Worlds. It is me, Eddie Hurst. Could you imagine? You don't have to. I'm right here. So every week we take a chapter of H.G. Wells' classic novel, we stick it in a blender, we mix in music, a bit of research, some comedy guests. We have a great old time. And what is this week? Great question that I'm about to answer. It is chapter eight, Friday night. All I've got in my head with this chapter is Wigfield Saturday night, which is not the right night. It's a whole 24 hours out. Okay, so we're going to get into it. Chapter 8, Friday night. If you're enjoying the podcast, why not tell me? Let me know what you're liking about it. Let me know what you're not liking about it. Tell me that secretly another public eye. So you can follow me on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. I'm at Eddie Hurst. It's like like the, like the it's spelled in the podcast, Eddie Hurst. Um, or you can get in touch with me on Eddie Hurst at Gmail. That's an option uh, for, for, your, for your secret secret wishes uh, or secret concerns, you know. I might be able to help um, if you've got a, a, a worry that's about something niche from Victorian times or or, or, um, or you want to know what to do with an alien. Uh, anyway, let's get into it. So, uh, the narrator has just gotten home to his wife uh, and now we're sort of seeing, this is one of those chapters that he does where it's like, okay, so I've told you my story, now we're going to look at how everybody else is reacting. And let me tell you, they're not reacting great. So, here we go, chapter 8, Friday night. So we start with one hell of a long sentence. (gasps) The most extraordinary thing to my mind, of all the strange and wonderful things that happened upon that Friday, was the dovetailing of the commonplace habits of our social order, with the first beginnings of the series of events that was to topple that social order headlong. If on Friday night you had taken a pair of compasses and drawn a circle with a radius of five miles around the Woking Sandpits, I doubt if you would have had one human being outside it, unless it were some relation of stemmed, or of the three or four cyclists of London lying dead on the common. Yeah, that'll teach those talented cycling bastards! Whose emotions or habits were at all affected by the newcomers. Many people had heard of the cylinders, of course, and talked about it in their leisure, but it certainly did not have the sensation that an ultimatum to Germany would have done. Wait, what does that... what does that mean? Why are we angry at the Germans now? It's not World War II for another 50 years. I thought, like, around this time we were mostly mad at the French, or maybe the Spanish, or maybe the Dutch, or... Actually, you know what? Yeah, it's fair. We're probably angry with everyone at this point. For this, we have to go back to the world of colonialism. Oh, are you using that land? Yes, I am. Well, I'll take it anyway. Or, as it's known, this entire shit show we live in. The prequel. The closest I've been able to find as far as a reference to an ultimatum in the British is the 1890 British ultimatum. Which is pretty on the nose. This was given to Portugal, not Germany, in regard to the colonies they had between Mozambique and Angola, which included Mashonaland and Matabeleland. The British sent demand for Portuguese troops to be removed from the area to allow Britain to rule the colonies. So here's what happened there. The British sent a demand to Portuguese troops to be removed from the area because Britain were all like, Uh, we have a more effective occupation than you do. But Portugal were like, Well, we have a total basis of rule on historic discovery and exploration. So they were like, find us keepers. And Britain went, Oh, grody to the max. You couldn't even keep a fire in a volcano. And by fire... They meant land that they'd originally invaded and taken off the indigenous population. I had no idea, but apparently, uh, historically, since 1361, Portugal and Britain had been considered some of each other's oldest allies. So as you can imagine, this was a bit of a spit in the face to the Portuguese from the British. Eventually, Portuguese gave up some of the land, and it led to the Anglo-Portuguese Treaty of 1890. 
1991. Settling Central African rule, which I'm absolutely certain Central Africans took a huge sigh of relief about that. Ah yes, just what we need, more overlords. The whole thing caused a hell of a stir in the press, and I believe at the time it would be described as quite the to-do. Anyway, why do I go on about Portugal in a note that's clearly about an ultimatum for Germany? Well, this is the closest to an official ultimatum I could see, and it's essentially a declaration for war if Portugal don't give up land. Look, when I started this podcast, I never even dreamed that half a sentence would lead me to looking at the socio-political climate of Europe in the run-up to World War I, and yet here we are. If we spent time looking at all the things I hadn't expected in 2020, we'd be unpacking more boxes than an IKEA warehouse. Queen Victoria married Prince Albert, who came from one of the countries that would eventually be unified as Germany. That's an important thing to say. Uh, it was only in the 1800s that Germany went from being Prussia and Bavaria and all these separate areas to one giant unified nation. This marriage in the 1800s, and then when there was unification of Germany, the Bismarck of Germany, let Britain basically get on with what they wanted in terms of colonial interest. So that created a pretty decent relationship with Britain and, and Germany. So, if the cards fell for war in Europe, the deck would be generally considered to be divided between France and Russia, and Britain, and the Germans. Like a, a, a frozen baguette versus a sausage and gravy. That's a food, it's a European food reference, that, that's alright, isn't it? That's fine. At the same time as this, Germany was beginning to militarise much more, after being unified and becoming, in the space of a few short years, a real powerhouse in Europe. Or as they would say, a real powerhouse, but in German. All of this is part of what leads to World War One. So, for Britain to deliver an ultimatum to Germany, seen as one of their strongest allies, also one of the largest military adversaries in the area, at a time when France and Russia were breathing down the neck of Britannia, would not only be quite a shock diplomatically, but if the Portuguese ultimatum caused a stir, then the German ultimatum would cause the whole cup of tea to spill out onto the mahogany Chesterfield. Rather! So, to summarise, Wells is making an understatement here. The cylinder was not a massive news story to the whole country, and we all know far more about the diplomacy of African colonialism than we did before. There will be a test at the end of this month, so please, for the love of God, make sure you bone up and sign ups for the debating team will be in the hall. In London that night, Paul Henderson's telegram describing the gradual unscrewing of the shot was judged to be a canard. It's me, the explaining lad, a, a canard. It's either an unfounded rumour or an aeronautical arrangement with wings at the front. So, like, if you see an airplane with two wings on it, the, the four wings, that's, that, that's a canard. So, I'm going to guess it's an unfounded rumour. And his evening paper, after wiring for authentication from him and receiving no reply, The man was killed. Decided not to print a special edition. Even within the five-mile circle, the great majority of people were inert. Uh, hi, it's me again. Um, oh, we're, we're getting worked over, aren't we? Inert, it means lacking ability to move. A bit like when I've eaten lots of jam sandwiches. <laughs> I have already described the behaviour of the men and women to whom I spoke. All over the district, people were dining and supping. Working men were gardening after the labours of the day. Children were being put to bed. Young people were wandering through the lanes lovemaking. There's so many old references in this chapter, it feels like I'm reverse engineering a Family Guy episode 150 years after it came out. It's exactly like that, only this has aged much better. In fact, this is going to give us a new feature called... Things meant different things. Now, H.G. Wells writing Making Love 
does not mean what you and I think it means. Otherwise, he is getting real sexy every time he wanders a lane. Hey baby, wanna bop in my time machine and make some love down romance row? From the 1600s, making love meant wholesome courtship, holding hands, giving gifts, being footloose and fancy free with your lad or lady love. Love you, darling. Yes, love you too. And that's all. Even up to the 1930s, making love, lovemaking, to make her the love, could just be a young couple taking their first steps to holy monogamous matrimony and absolutely nothing else. The first usage of it meaning the horizontal honky-tonk came in a play by Mae West, unsurprisingly called Sex. Sex. That was in 1927, but it was a while away before this became a common reference for making love. Calling the downstairs hokey-cokey making love started to come into parlance in the 1950s in a big way. As this interpretation is generally seen as an American take on the phrase, it possibly has connection to the rise in American culture being exported across the world after the Second World War. Uh, there's also a theory that it was used as a euphemism for American sitcoms, so they could talk about doing the monk's secret handshake without actually having to call it the nasty afternoon. And from there, it just became part of general usage. Still, imagine if he had meant that, like, making love meant that, like, meant having sex. Like, he just mentioned it so casually, it'd be... It'd be kind of, kind of funny, right? Right? Is this, hello? Is this, is this on? <laughs> Students sat over their books. Maybe there was a murmur in the village streets, a novel or dominant topic in the public houses, and here and there a messenger, or even an eyewitness of the later occurrences, caused a whirl of excitement, a shouting, and a running to and fro. For the most part, the daily routine of working, eating, drinking, sleeping, went on as it has done for countless years, as though no planet Mars existed in the sky. Even at Woking Station and Horsell and Chobham, that was the case. In Woking Junction, until a late hour, trains were stopping and going on. Others were shunting on the sidings, passengers were alighting and waiting, and everything was proceeding in the most ordinary way. A boy from the town, trenching on Smith's Monopoly, was selling papers with the afternoon's news. Hello, this is just a little explanation that uh, Smith's Monopoly is probably W.H. Smith. You know, the news agent that despite overcharging for everything and having the worst supply of anything will survive any economic or nuclear fallout. It even had a monopoly in Victorian times by setting up in train stations and selling newspapers. It was one of the first news agents in the country, so it's either that or Adam Smith, the economist, who's just generally talking about monopoly. And that doesn't really make any sense, does it? Like, why would you just mention the economic theory of monopoly in order to talk about a little boy doing news it, it, it took about an hour for us to realize this okay bye the ringing impact of the trucks the sharp whistle of the engines from the junction mingled with their shouts of made from mars made from mars made from mars Sighted men came into the station. Came into the station. Came into the Excited men came into the station about nine o'clock with incredible tidings and caused no more disturbance than drunkards might have done. 
people rattling Londonwards peered into the darkness outside the carriage windows and saw only a rare, flickering, vanishing spark dance up from the direction of Horsell. A red glow and a thin veil of smoke driving across the stars and thought that nothing was more serious than a heath fire was happening. It was only round the edge of the common that any disturbance was perceptible. There were half a dozen villas burning on the Woking border. There were lights in all the houses on the common side of the three villages, and the people there kept awake till dawn. A curious crowd lingered restlessly, people coming and going, but the crowd remaining, both on the Chobham and Horsell bridges. One or two adventurous souls, it was afterwards found, went into the darkness and crawled quite near the Martians, but they never returned. For now and again, a light ray, like a beam of a warship's searchlight, swept the common, and the heat ray was ready to follow. So, of the really advanced technology that Martians have, they have one, a super-powered laser heat ray, and two, a handheld torch. Save for such. That big area of the common was silent and desolate, and the charred bodies lay on it all night under the stars. And all the next day, a noise of hammering from the pit was heard by many people. So you have the state of things on Friday night. In the centre, sticking into the skin of our old planet Earth like a poisoned dart, was this cylinder. But the poison was scarcely working yet. Around it was a patch of silent common, smouldering in places, with a few dark, dimly seen objects lying in contorted attitudes here and there. Here and there was a burning bush or tree, beyond the fringe of excitement, and farther than that fringe the inflammation had not crept as yet. In the rest of the world the stream of light still flowed as it had flowed for immemorial years. The fever of war that would presently clog vein and artery, deaden nerve and destroy brain, had still to develop. What a paragraph! I, you know, I feel like sometimes I give him an unfair deal because every now and then he has a paragraph like that and it is... Woo! All night long the Martians were hammering and stirring, sleepless, indefatigable, at work upon the machines they were making ready. And ever and again, a puff of greenish-white smoke whirled up to the starlit sky. Uh, Martians making machines, uh, you know what that's gonna be? About eleven, a company of soldiers came through Horsell and deployed along the edge of the common to form a cordon. Soldiers, assume the mega cordon. <laughs> Later, a second company marched through Chobham to deploy on the north side of the common. Several officers from the Inkerman Barracks had been on the common earlier in the day, and one, Major Eden. Woo! We've got a name that isn't the. It's Major Eden. Could that mean anything? Like Garden of Eden? Doubt, doubt, doubt. I don't really. The imagery doesn't match up, so it seems unlikely. Was reported to be missing. <laughs> Come on! Like, the first time we've had a character that isn't the or my or something, and he's dead. <laughs> the colonel of the regiment came to the Chobham Bridge and was busy questioning the crowd at midnight. The military authorities were certainly alive to the seriousness of the business. About 11, the next morning's papers were able to say 
a squadron of hussars, two maxims, and about 400 men of the Cardamon Regiment started from Aldershot. Introducing to Horsell Common, it's the latest boys in green, it's the army lads. Who have we got coming over? Ah yes, here we see it's the hussars, the lads on horses, they're your favourite light cavalry. Welcome the horse lad hussars. Who's that coming up next? It's two maxims. Ah, is it birds of a feather flock together? Or perhaps the pen is mightier than the sword? <laughs> Not quite. Uh, these swords are certainly mightier than any pen you would ever see, for they are two giant machine guns that prototype machine guns. They're like original machine guns before being used. They're, you might have seen in the Guns of the Ugly in the Civil War, but they used these. And last but not least, it's Lord Cardigan's finest boys. Knitted from the finest merino wool, these lads are buttoned down and ready to frown. Tally-ho, lads! Give those Martians a pint of punches! A few seconds after midnight, the crowd in the Chertsey Road, woking, saw a star fall from heaven into the pine woods to the northwest. It had a greenish colour, and caused a silent brightness like summer lightning. This was the second cylinder. Ah, second cylinder! Ah, do you know what that means? It means another, it means more Martians. More Martians are arriving. We're actually, it's going from being an accidental, an accidental crash land by Martians into a war. It's gonna be tripods, it's gonna be, I can feel it. Although, actually, we'll look at that. Tripods, it's not technically a tripod, really. Uh, no, it's not specifically a tripod, it's just sort of all that and more to enjoy in the coming chapters. Chapter 9, of course, is The Fighting Begins. So I wonder what's in there, right? It's gonna be fighting, it's gonna be fighting. Thank you so much for enjoying the podcast, I hope you are. If not, why have you listened all the way to the end, you maniac? Please follow, tell people about the show, rate and review us on all of the places you can. If you're listening on Spotify, and I know some of you are, I have the statistics, you cannot rate on Spotify. Because while Spotify is very useful for combining music and podcasting, it's not very useful for the actual creators. So if you could head over to iTunes or to Podchaser uh, or to some other site where you can get podcasts from and just give it a rating, that really helps get the word out. Also, share us on social media because they might want to go on the same journey you have. Why not share the love? Share what you're enjoying. So share it on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, it's at Eddie Hurst. Lastly, this is uh, probably probably larger news for yourself. The podcast schedule is changing. What, 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 what? The chapters from here on in get much larger. And as a result of that, I don't want to have to rush it by doing it weekly. So we're going to change to bi-weekly. This means that we will be able to keep the same good quality content that we're enjoying now. But it does mean that there is going to be an extra week. But don't worry, we've got some extra content that can bob in every now and then. So, guys, thank you so much for supporting this. I will see you in two weeks for Chapter 9, The Fighting Begins. Eddie Hurst podcast version was produced by Eddie Hurst, written by Eddie Hurst and H.G. Wells. Special help this episode to just me, baby. Please like, subscribe, rate five stars on wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks very much, guys. See you later.